everyone, it's Daniel Elwood, and my co-host is my hetero life mate, Robert Johnson. And we're going to be talking about the movie Trumbo tonight on episode 166 of The Last Nighters. You can find us at lastnighters.com slash 166. You can also find us on the Liberty Movement's YouTube channel, and we'll have that on the show notes page for tonight's episode. And tonight we have a, a returning guest. He is Keith Knight of Don't Tread on Anyone. He's been on with us multiple times in the past, including movies of the Godfather series. And he is a uh, just a beast of a interviewer and articulative. Uh, he's he's ar- he, he gets into arguments with people. He does great debates. And he also works for the Libertarian Institute. It is Keith Knight. Welcome back to the show. And thank you for joining us. Appreciate you having me on, gentlemen. Well, you are more than welcome. I mean... In fact, we feel like you are gracing us with your presence on this on this here show. So if you could just, in case people, you know, like I said in the pre-show, bonus content available for our Patreon supporters. And it was over an hour of content, by the way. So it's well worth the fiat that people are going to have to pay for that. Go to lastnarrative.com slash Patreon for that. But we mentioned that people tend to come and go on our show based on the movie that we're reviewing. And so if, if people are not familiar with you and your work and they didn't watch the Godfather or Godfather two episode. And I forgive me, I forget what you were on for before that, but if people haven't heard of you before, what would you suggest they do to find out more? I would suggest they go to my YouTube channel and make sure you're subscribed on Odyssey and library. Cause I keep getting striked on YouTube just in case I get taken down and check out a playlist. The best of Keith Knight. Don't try it on anyone. That is a, a brief introduction. There are a variety of videos there for people who are conservatives, progressives, minarchists, people in, uh, interested in history, foreign policy, economics, philosophy, and ethics. That is probably the best brief introduction into what my uh, channel is all about all right that sounds very good and i will of course have links to that and also to the ultimate red pill which is a now i always forget how long it is because i watch everything at multiple speed uh is it a four hour video that you did or is it it's an eight hours? five hours and five hours. ten minutes five yeah. hours and ten minutes okay so if you guys played a two x on the youtube you can do it in half the time and it's still quite an effective thing. So well worth checking out. I, of course, had the ultimate red pill on our show notes page as well. And Keith, thanks again for joining us. Uh, it's it's uh, we always love talking to you. So welcome back. Now, how we start off the show is usually I fuddle around with some technology here and they've actually changed a few things on me here. Uh, we're going to be talking about the movie Trumbo and I'm going to share the Google description, which should be showing up for everyone right about now. All right, here we go. So this came out in the year 2015. It's a drama slash crime film, oddly enough. Uh, Two hours and four minutes, though, as my wife can attest, it plays much longer than that. Uh, It's on uh, Netflix right now and also on Canopy, which you can access if you have a library card. And um, that's how we watched it because I no longer have Netflix. This uh, got a 7.5 on the IMDb, 74% Rotten Tomatoes, 60% on Metacritic and 86% of Google users liked it. The description is very brief. It says in 1947, successful screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, played by Brian Cranston, and other Hollywood figures get blacklisted for their political beliefs. End scene. This came out uh, January 21st, 2016 in Brazil. It's directed by Jay Roach, and I think he did some other um, comedy type of films before this. 
And uh, it stars Brian Cranston, has Helen Mirren and Diane Lane. And Robert, I will go to you for your opening take on this here particular movie. Well, sure. Since this is this is uh, my requested film, I, I first saw this, I don't know, a couple months back. And I saw the first like 10, 15 minutes and I was like, this is so right up our alley that we have to do this. Or I, I could do an entire show just on the first 15 minutes. Because it plays with history, it plays with censorship, it plays with communists, it plays with the villains being the government, which I don't know if you've heard the show before, but that's kind of what we talk about. Now, the film itself, uh, Dalton Trumbo is played by Brian Cranston very well, as far as I could tell. I mean, he's just a, a phenomenal actor. The, the production is all quite well. Uh, you know, uh, The lighting, the directing is all fine. Uh, Louis C.K. even puts in a decent performance. But as Daniel talked about, it does it does play a little bit long. And I have a few thoughts on why that is. You know, it's a biopic. And human lives are not structured in three acts, as you might know. So, you know, there, it sets up some conflicts with him having these kind of radical beliefs. And it sets up the time with uh, World War II having ended and then the Cold War beginning and then the big fear about communism spreading all over the world. And, uh, you know, I have thoughts about that, but I don't necessarily get into them at this point. Um, the uh, The movie itself, though, you know, it, it has the conflict and he, ha and he does a few things to combat this you know, there's a scenes in Congress, there's, he goes to prison, there's him coming home and being blacklisted, but still working and how he does works and figures that out. But then after he does that, the movie just kind of keeps going and he works for Kirk Douglas. And then he works for another guy making this movie called Odyssey. And it just kind of keeps going and, and the movie loses its real narrative weight. And it is like trying to follow his life, but it, it, it didn't seem like the movie knew when to end itself. It, it ends on a big speech where he's like accepting some award. He's talking about the blacklist and how evil it was or whatever. But it seemed like you could have cut to that in almost at any point. So, I mean, it kind of made sense where the he he was so successful and ultimately, the people were like, listen, he's writing our movies, and I don't care who knows it. I guess that's it's kind of shows that that's the point at which the movie kind of formally ends. But it really takes its time in getting to that point. So I could see Daniel's point about that being it really quite long. But um, uh, the movie, I guess we could just get into what people have to say. Um, because the movie starts out. Wait a minute. First of all, let me back up. Hold on. First of all, it's about a writer. And I love the fact that it's about a writer. Uh, I love the fact that he works in a bathtub. I, I get all kinds of awesome ideas in a bathtub. I also like dr taking drives in my car and just not without any music and just letting my mind go blank. And you get great ideas doing that. But I really um, identified with the way he worked. Um, so I, I appreciate that he was like our protagonist for the most part. But the, um, the movie starts out with a titles card. And it makes a claim that in response to the Great Depression and the rise of fascism, thousands of Americans joined the Communist Party of the United States. 
And right from the get-go, it, it kind of makes the, you, you know what you're in for, that this is, movie is going to be like pro-communism and that communism is sort of the, the response or the, the good guys in the fight against fascism. And for me, they're both authoritarian douchebag ideas. And it, it, I don't really think that communism is the, the white hats versus the, the black-hatted fascists. I, if you look at the body counts, it's certainly not even close. That the communists have killed way, way more. But of course, you know, it's never true communism and it's never their fault. It's always somebody else's fault. But those are my uh, interesting or those are my initial thoughts. Um, I'll take it from there. All right. Well, I, I appreciate that, Robert. And, and I think you're right. It does sort of set the scene as almost the proto Antifa situation where uh, apparently anything bad is evil and uh, you're fighting against it because you're Antifa. However, comma, <clears throat> I feel like if you took an objective, logical take on <clears throat> the ideas that are espoused by either, they're almost essentially the same. You know, like fascism is essentially government collaboration with private industry. And communism is government direction or ownership of private industry or of industry. And so really, what is the difference other than in name? The effects are about the yeah. same. The wrapping is a little bit different, I suppose. Maybe, uh, I mean, I don't know. If you, if you look at the, the speeches of Mussolini and Stalin, they're probably just as crazy, but maybe Mussolini was a little bit more, shook his fist a little bit more. I don't know. Right. But, but I mean, the beautiful thing is you listen to these, um, you know, democratic socialists clamoring for more regulation over private industry. And you could almost like overlay them with a Mussolini speech. And it's like identical, the things that they want, the things they desire. And it's, it's weird because that's literal fascism. And uh, yet, that's what they're clamoring for. And in, in the name of fighting fascism, which is kind of hilarious to me. And of course, this movie is, um, I, 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 as you mentioned earlier, I'm a bit beyond uh, the scope of what you guys have seen because I watched the documentary. And in the documentary, he makes it very much more about how he loves the United States and the Constitution itself and the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment and how he's like protecting his free speech. And that's why he chose to use the First Amendment instead of the Fifth when he was going against uh, Congress and the HUAC. And so he knew that he was going to go to jail or, or be charged with contempt of Congress because he had contempt of that Congress and every other Congress. And I agree with him. I also have contempt for them. Um, and then I guess some of the... Uh, justices on the Supreme Court who were sympathetic to free speech causes at the time had died. And then that ended up with him going to jail as a result of his thought crime. And so I found myself being very sympathetic to the character, though I abhor his ideas and his naive ideals related to communism about it being just about sharing. And as we've said in the, in our IMs with each other, it's sharing by force like at gunpoint as mao said it's uh government is uh, what's the, what's the what's the thing that mao says um political all, power comes out of the barrel of a gun right political power comes out of the power barrel of a gun and that's what uh happens here in this movie that's that's what the the sharing in communism is it's based on force and so basically my point is 
that yes, he's naively presenting this information, but in the movie and in the documentary, I found myself sympathetic to him. However, he was using the arguments for uh, free speech um, in the vein of how it's how to interpret it today is you use the argument for free speech when you're not in power. Yep. But when it is you in power, you prevent the free speech of your adversaries, your political adversaries. So anyway, yeah, yeah no, my- I had, I, I had the exact same thought. I, I, I thought that it was really convenient for him as the underdog, as the being oppressed guy to be for pre- free speech. Cause he, his speech was the one that was being attacked. But I, I tend to wonder if he was alive today, would he be so free, pro free speech for all the conservative voices that are getting censored, or all the, the liberty movement voices that are getting that get censored? I, I just don't think he would be that principled of a person. It did, at least he didn't come off. He came off in the movie as a very somewhat principled guy. But I think that this movie was very much you know rah rah pro communism. This is our hero guy. Right, right. Did, did you get the sense of that in the documentary? Or that, that he was just using it as a tool? I would say in the documentary, it's it's less the pro-communism angle and it's more the pro-free speech angle. But again, it's a documentary. It's presenting a certain perspective. And it's really hard to know like what the reality is. I found myself being very sympathetic to his arguments because I feel like I'm and we are in a similar position as he was at the time. Because the political climate and social climate is against what we believe and what we espouse. And he found himself in a similar position. And I felt like, and Keith, I want to bring you in on this because I know that as soon as we get get you in, you're going to go for 20 minutes straight and then we'll get a word in edgewise. But I feel like um, that in, in his position, he was being unduly and unjustly blacklisted economically like excommunicated like socially ostracized and it shows such uh how much of a powerful force that is and can be and that economic devastation is essentially a means of control and so that what that's what made me very sympathetic to him and and corollary is you know present day if they were looking for communist ideals and subversion and propaganda within movies in hollywood in the 40s and 50s Look at what you've seen since. It's been tenfold since. Look at your government schools. It's tenfold even even uh, even that. So um, it, it really reminds me of uh, Yuri Bezmenov, the former KGB agent who defected to the U.S. And, and in the 1980s gave a bunch of presentations about subversive tactics and how uh, they want to overthrow and destabilize governments and societies. And this movie depicts the, the period of... Uh, the HUAC committees and and the Cold War as um, almost this quaint like beginning and this almost WWF style like pretend fight against it only to then acquiesce to it and exacerbate it. And so, Keith, I'm going to go to you with 20 minutes of nonsense and uh, get your take on what we've talked about so far and your take on the movie. I, I don't have 20 minutes worth in me. Uh, I just jotted down a number of things you guys said. Of course, this is the lie that um, the only reason communism or democratic socialism exists is because of fascism. They started it or just responding. This is just like the 9-11 lie. We were just attacked out of nowhere. All we're doing is responding. No, that's a lie. 
Uh, Karl Marx, of course, wrote the Communist Manifesto in uh, 1848, and in 1905, there was an attempted Russian Revolution that failed, and in 1917, the Communist Bolshevik Revolution succeeded. And then years later, Giovanni Gentili and Benito Mussolini wrote the doctrine of fascism. Mussolini was a disenfranchised Marxist who said, you know, I really thought if there was ever a world war, workers of the world would unite. Didn't happen. What happened is the workers in each country uh, united around their nation. What we need to do is take these principles and instead of bourgeoisie versus proletariat, we uh, embrace the nation as the group. So he uh, gave us national socialism or fascism and uh, increased its efficiency by uh, conspiring with uh, private enterprise in the meantime. The point is, is that is just factually not true, that communism is the response to uh, fascism or, or or anything else that, that that's just uh, documented. As far as um, were uh, could Trumbo have had sort of an innocent excuse to be a communist at the time, thinking it was sharing? Well, no, because just as you uh, would not get any sympathy today if you were a Nazi. One of my favorite interviews ever is a black Nazi getting interviewed by local news. He goes, "Yeah, I'm I'm a national socialist. That's just what it means." Anyone really looking into something, trying to find a sympathetic angle can find one in any murderous ideology. However, uh, there uh, you would not be justified because the Holodomor had already happened. The Soviets had invaded Ukraine and engaged in both a mass murder campaign and deliberate starvation uh, in order to... Uh, Tom Woods really gets into the details of it, but in order to... Uh, get a nation to sort of bend the knee to tyranny by monopolizing the economy and the resources of that industry, well, then any ideological backlash you might have, people are like, well, uh, I would usually argue against this regime, but they have monopolized food production, so I'm just not going to speak out against them. That is how the Soviets were able to uh, more or less uh, get the Ukrainian people to uh, not resist in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. Of course, there was a mass uh, starvation known as the Holodomor. So that is just as bad as the Holocaust if we're going by uh, if we're going by uh, numbers. Of course, uh, in the uh, well, I, I guess it was after after uh, the, the Soviets had uh, invaded other countries after the Second World War. Either way. You have a murderous ideology that is being embraced. It would literally, uh, uh, my point is, is that these people don't deserve too much sympathy. It is the equivalent of an actual Nazi uh, today. So granted, everyone counts as a Nazi. If you don't uh, appreciate, uh, you know, uh, the Mao's, uh, the, the quotations from Mao Zedong. So they changed the meaning of the word. But imagine an actual Nazi not getting a job who thought that he had the right to oppress other people. Well, then we wouldn't feel too much, uh, too much uh, pain for that person. As far as communism, socialism, and fascism being the same thing, of course they are. They all are uh, the different ideologies of socialism, the institutionalized aggression against private property, um, whereas capitalism is a system which embraces the idea of private property, voluntary contracts, original appropriation, voluntary exchange, and self-ownership, all different variations of communism, socialism, and fascism will sort of be sold under uh, different umbrellas, whether it's for the good of the nation, for the good of the proletariat, for the good of the environment. They all have one thing in common, the institutionalized aggression against private property, as Hoppe makes very clear in his book, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. Um, as far as him embracing the ideology of free speech, well, why should speech be free? This is something you really want to nail down if you're dealing with a well-intended person. Well, if speech is free... Won't some people be better at speaking than others? Won't this give them 
more people who listen to them? Won't this create inequality? Won't this create power differentials in society that could lead to oppression? Well, yes, all of that could theoretically happen with or without free speech, but people still have the right to speak their mind. And that is the same reason they have the right to acquire property voluntarily and acquire it through the original appropriation principle. People can do anything they want so long as they don't initiate aggression against people and their justly acquired property. Um, I thought it was funny you mentioned that it was a long movie. I'm trying to find a labor theory of value joke. It's in there somewhere, but uh, but but it's not coming to me. The longer it is, the better it must be. <laughs> the longer it is, the better it must be. So um, as far as was there, oh, so Michael Malice made the funny joke then. What if there was a uh, government committee that went after possible Klansmen and white supremacists in the government? Well, we might think of it as futile and an excuse to clamp down on anyone who technically could be categorized as a white supremacist or a racist because they use such vague definitions and have no principles that anyone could count. But what if they were literally going after Klansmen, people who advocated the philosophy of the you know Ku Klux Klan? Some people have the right to rule over others based on accidents of birth. Well, then they'd be justified in doing so. Even if you don't think it's a big deal today, as far as, you know, their power and numbers, you'd still more or less be justified in doing so. The communist regimes are far more murderous than the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan could ever dream of. You know, Thomas Sowell, I think, cited uh, 4,000 deaths as a cause or result of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, Chairman Mao and Stalin and Lenin and Pol Pot and th these evil regimes did that in, you know, a couple days. So, in other words, um, if, if we're so terrified of, you know, uh, offending people based on, you know, th their ideology, well, if we're going to have an aggressive approach against the Klan, let's have an aggressive approach against the communists. Of course, you have proven um, examples of communist conspiracies in the Western nation. The Cambridge Five is one of the biggest ones in Britain. There were literal Soviet spies. In America, you have the Venona Papers, which came out, I want to say, in the 80s or 90s, but they essentially proved Joseph McCarthy was right. There were about 349 actual communists in the State Department sending information to the Soviets. We know the Rosenbergs actually gave atomic secrets to uh, Stalin's regime. Now, I'm not saying that we can set aside whether nukes are legitimate or whether it's good. More countries have nukes than fewer. The point is, is McCarthy actually was right. So it's not that this was a terrible conspiracy theory, that there was nothing behind. Common Turn is an actual communist conspiracy that it says right at the end of the manifesto, workers of the world unite. It is a world program to get, it's referred to as international socialism for a reason. They want to be everywhere all the time. Uh, you, of course, have uh, Harry Dexter White, you have Alger Hiss, uh, Klaus Fuchs, the Rosenbergs, and Laughlin Curry were the biggest examples of people who were persecuted under the House of Un-American Activities Committee, proven in the Venona Project to be literally working for the Soviets. So it, whether it's bad or good, please don't pretend that it was just some, you know, uh, d just some theory that McCarthy had for, for, for no reason. That is my uh, opener for uh, why I thought the movie was was more or less just evil and how it portrayed anyone who questioned the actual communist conspiracy and saw it for what it was an evil ideology. All right. So I love that. I love that uh, soliloquy, Keith. That monologue is great. Now, I was torn in watching this movie because I'm like, I'm not sure which place I fall because I do feel like there was unjust persecution for thought crime, but I also feel like that this guy was naive and pushing an ideology that of course was evil. And that if he was 
implanting propaganda into movies and, and uh, media that that might not necessarily be a good thing. And I was thinking of the Hopi and Covenant community where he talks about in his quote, where people who advocate for things counter to the covenant itself would be thrown out of that community because they'd be violating the, uh, the terms or the things that they agree to enjoying it. But then I think about like society as a whole within the governmental structures and state structures that we have, that we don't really have a covenant community per se. And so there is really no obligation to follow any of those particulars. And if we're really concerned about propagandizing people and population, we should be less worried about a handful of potential sympathetic communists and more concerned about literal communists who run the government school systems or the military industrial complex who are greenlighting scripts that are uh, pro, you know, whatever the message is that the, the industrial, uh, the industrial, com the industrial military industrial complex wants uh, a la, you know, like say a top gun type movie, which was one of the biggest recruiting tools for the Navy and for the military in the eighties. And so I'm just like, for me, I'm torn on which side to take in this movie. I agree that I see the angle that you and I think Robert has sort of talked about where, yes, you have a guy who claims that he advocates for communism and he's naive in his beliefs that it's just sharing. And of course it's by force. They're not gonna let you choose to share or not share. They're gonna force you to share. But at the same time, I do think there is persecution and a limitation of speech and a thought crime that is being persecuted here. And I think that is worthy of discussion. And it relates a little bit to current day where one has to be careful about what they say or advocate for in social media or even at their jobs uh, at risk of losing their economic viability based on their beliefs. Right. Which is why I, 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 I wonder if without the HUAC, whether or not uh, these communists would have, I mean, I, I, it didn't seem like they would be, they really, the, the, the studios came together only in, in got, you know, refused to hire the Hollywood 10 after all that pressure. Right. I mean, they wouldn't have just, this isn't just like voluntary free association. Hey, we're not going to, we're not going to hire these guys because I disagree with their ideology. It was a social, there was a societal like fervor. I think that at least is portrayed. So yeah, they felt social pressure to do it. They felt a lot of social pressure, much like the the woke crap these days, right? Like these companies aren't just like canceling Mr. Potato Head and uh, Land Lakes Lady and the uh, Mrs. Butterworths because they all of a sudden realize the error of their ways for decades and centuries or whatever. Um, now, I, I I think it's interesting you bring up Hoppe because I was going to bring him up too. Um, you know, these these state actors like McCarthy and these people that are running these hearings. They, you know, they they see the the United States as this this their property, right? Like they're the kind of custodians of this area, and they need to watch over it because they are the parents, or this is their job, or whatever, right? They don't understand the private property argument, and then the, how they're violating those rights. But in their in their world, in their minds, they're the good guys because they see this murderous ideology. Maybe they're really identifying the communist ideology. And that's, I, I mean, I, I don't really don't know Joseph McCarthy's head, but let's just say for that. He recognized communism for its murderous terribleness. And he really had good intentions in rooting out these people and exposing them 
and trying to cleanse Hollywood of this ideological propaganda because, like you say, it is somewhat effective, right? I mean, when when uh, it's in all the schools, it's in all the, the motion pictures and all the TV shows, and you're showing it to children, and it's just sharing, and, and Stephen Colbert comes on and says it's just sharing, so I don't understand. It does have an effect, uh, not to say that, that uh, free-thinking, uh, you know, self-owning adults can't deal with that, but there is an effect on children and that kind of thing. So I, I can see the point of the who act committee and themselves thinking themselves as the good guys. But at the same time, I can also see, you know, Trumbo's position as being like, you're, you're, you're persecuting me for thought crime. All I have are just slightly different beliefs than you. Like all he's doing is pushing the left's position just a little bit more. He just wants a little bit more leftism in this government that they all agree to, right? Like, or for the most part, they all believe in. So for him, it's like, I just want a little bit more government. And you're, yeah, it's, it's kind and of hilarious. To, and to me, they're all kind of on the same side. It's just yeah, a matter right. of degree, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm totally torn on this. And I think it, 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 I'm torn on what it was back in the 40s and 50s when this was all happening. And I'm torn on how it relates to today. And there are many recent episodes of shows, uh, podcasts that we consume and, and enjoy, such as Keith Knight's Don't Tread on Anyone and Free Man Beyond the Wall with Pete Quinones and also Dave Smith's Part of the Problem. Well, they were all talking about similar issues in culture and, and how things have changed over time and how conservatives have have lost their way and, and uh, given over to culture of leftisms. And even Bill Maher has had a take on uh, this cancel culture situation where people are being derided for having anything against the political woke narrative that is being portrayed out in society. And even my own company uh, has been pushing narratives within the internal system of the, uh, you know, like the emails and communications within the internal company that have made a lot of people really uncomfortable with how things are headed. And I'm not sure where things are going to end up, but I feel like it's this concentration of power where there's this imposition of what society must be like disseminated amongst large groups of disparate people living in different regions. That is the problem itself. It's the concentration of power and the concentration of uh, homogeny that people are trying to impose on each other when people really should be decentralized and be able to live in their own communities and live in their own cultures and live in their own uh, ideas. Granted, you should, of course, be able to share ideas and communicate and argue ideas and argue the merits of ideas and have debates and things like that. But it seems as if those things are going to the wayside. And it's more about what's been decided somewhere else that doesn't make any sense, that's morally correct in relative mor moral or moral relativism terms and not factually correct. And that really doesn't seem like it's going to get you anywhere other than into a point of self-destruction. And to your point of this tremendous concentration of power, Hollywood wouldn't have had this tremendous concentration of power if not for IP laws and the regulations that, what was it? Uh, the, the whole reason they moved out to Hollywood in the first place was because they tried to get away from the regulations that made it so that they, they could only use a certain kind of camera or whatever. I forget that story. But. Yeah, there were patent laws related to uh, what kind of equipment you could use uh, in the greater like 
New York, New Jersey region, and they went to California because it was far enough away to where the enforcement was not possible. Right. So you would have way more competition, like you kept more like you do now with the, the dissemination of technology and the ability to make your own content is so much easier. But yeah, the uh, the, the concentration of power is, is, a, is a real thing for sure. Yeah. So Keith, I want you to jump in because I know I, I went kind of all over the board there. Um, so I'm sure you have a couple of takes. Well, the main thing that they didn't get to is the same thing uh, in the uh, HUAC committee is the same thing that the state doesn't get to today when calling people terrorists. It's just a label that they spend so much time talking about without ever really defining it. Because if you define it, then you'll see that it not only applies to a lot of people you don't like, it applies to the state itself. So if you think communism has something to do with sharing and people are against this thing called communism or communes, well, then of course you see them as the evil people because they're just hating against people who want to share things. However, forced sharing is akin to saying voluntary rape, a voluntary slavery, or a coerced trait. They're total contradictions. It's not sharing if it is coerced any more than it's going to someone's house for dinner when it's actually kidnapping. Of course, the root here is consent. It's all about voluntarism and whether or not people are uh, valuing something to the extent of they are voluntarily willing to engage in the behavior or engage in the trade. Molyneux said this so long ago. He said, you know, all problems could be solved in like 15 minutes if we just, you know, really got down to definitions. Now, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but when you realize how people will spend decades debating things and the people in the debates don't have consistent definitions about capitalism, a social system based on the explicit recognition of private property and non-aggressive contractual exchanges between private property owners, socialism, the institutionalized aggression against private property, and communism, the abolition of private property. The fact that people don't have those down is what allows people to get so confused for so long that it more or less, I think, would be justified to cage someone if they were, you know, uh, explicitly... Uh, advocating the initiation of violence. So if I say, well, I think Robert should uh, pay his taxes, that is not enough to put me in a cage. But if I say I'm going to start holding rallies across America and it's going to be about why we should murder Robert if he doesn't chip in to the Libertarian Institute for our $50,000 fundraiser. Well, okay, at that point, I'm actively conspiring against Robert to initiate violence against a peaceful person. Then I think you'd have the right to cage me. In you the know, world of Warcraft. Yeah. Uh, if I own a gun, you don't have the right to cage me. If I load it, point it at your face and say, I'm going to kill you. What are your last words? Well, at that point, you would have the right to because I'm displaying myself as an immediate threat to someone else. I'm initiating violence. At that point, you would. A lot of people who advocate communism and fascism and socialism and rape and slavery and kidnapping, you don't have to wait till they commit the crime. There, of course, was, you know, Chris Hansen's To Catch a Predator, where the people, the guys never did anything, but they had displayed themselves as such a threat to initiate aggression against, you know, people who don't have the mental capacity to consent to such things, that you would be justified in caging them for that. So my whole thing is you got to get down to definitions and people saying, I'm anti-communist. I would just ask them what's wrong with sharing. And if they're not able to detect it right away and say it has nothing to do with sharing, it has to do with initiating violence against peaceful people. But if they're like, um, or, or Ch Ch Chank Uger's response, well, the, the problem with communism is it just doesn't work. You probably can't motivate people to do things. 
the problem there is you've already given them the playing field. You've already said, all right, it could be legitimate. So now all we have to do is engage and debate in empirical studies. And so let's say we have 30 communist experiments. Well, what if you try to create a plane 50 times and it doesn't work? doesn't mean you stop trying. You try harder and you try with more people and you try for longer periods of time. That's why if you don't knock communism, socialism, fascism, syndicalism, minarchism, if you don't knock these things at the root, you're just asking for problems in the future. That's why only voluntarists, libertarians, and anarcho-capitalists have the actual solution to any of these things because we've really nailed down the principled difference between uh, all of these ideologies. So as far as, you know, someone saying, well, that wasn't real communism, you know, uh, I'm willing to, uh, you know, admit that when, you know, sometimes they call something socialism or fascism or capitalism or communism, the people advocating it are more using it as stamps and slogans rather than actually embracing the principled ideology. So all you have to do is understand the definitions of what you're actually advocating to know whether it was real communism or real capitalism, or as it very often is a mixture of the two. Understanding definitions is uh, the way you cannot be manipulated by uh, by the uh, thought controllers of uh, of the world. Yeah, and I kind of like the Hoppian take on it, where it really distills it down to just an A or B. It's either you are allowing voluntary and consensual contractual relationships, or you're not. And one is in the socialist, communist, fascist, uh, anti-freedom camp. And the other is in the voluntarist, capitalist, pro-freedom camp, where it's individuals making choices or not. And anything that's thwarting it is on a spectrum of communism or socialism of one degree or another. And I find that in a way, you're sort of like taking something that you could look as if you simplify it a certain way, you're being naive. But if you overcomplicate it, then you're being even more naive. And if you distill it down to what it really is in the basics between it's either you're going in this direction or this other direction, then you've really come to an understanding of what it is. And I think that's where Hoppe brings uh, some real meat to the uh, to the grinder. Indeed. Now, to get back to the film just a little bit, I, I did. I did Wait, we're write talking down, about a movie here. <laughs> I did write down some quotes that I am sympathetic to. So this movie does have some, you know, it's got some people that are questioning the government, which I appreciated. It has some people that are cynical about the government and the government's claims, which I am also sympathetic to. And it's got some pretty good quotes. So I thought I would share them and offer a few thoughts. So there's this communist meeting at Trumbo's house. And they are discussing the the big pressure from the HUAC committee. And I, I think it's Louis C.K. who says, Congress knows about the First Amendment. They just don't give a shit. And this is absolutely true. It's also true for the entire Constitution. It's not just the First Amendment. The, the laws on the books are tools to be wielded when they feel like doing that, when it's pertinent when they want to bludgeon their opponents that's they don't like live by these things as principles uh the second quote is congress loves their new war they're talking about the cold war because it's vague scary and expensive anybody for it is a hero and then anybody against it is a traitor and i felt this so much during the iraq war this was absolutely after 9 11 it was rah, 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 
we're going to go get this new war. We're going to get the terrorists. The terrorists are this amorphous enemy that, you know, they'll always be terrorists. You're constantly going to have blowback when you're invading and killing other people in other countries. So you can always brand any kind of resistance as terrorism. And then it was all very much, I think the first Iraq war was voted for like almost exclusively. Like I had, didn't, wasn't like, like two people voted against it or something like that. Like ran like Ron Paul and like one other person or something like that. I forget what, I forget what it was, but it was almost universal. So anybody for is a hero. Anybody against it is a traitor. There was a whole lot of talking heads on TV at the time saying any kind of anti-war stuff. Was, I think that could was, it wasn't the time for it. Current day with the sure. pandemic uh, situation. You know, it's almost the same thing, only even more so because every individual can be a hero by enforcing, uh, you know, compliance oh, with yeah. mandates and the experts. Oh, yeah. Karenism is on the rise for sure. Uh, and then there was a one um, quote where the the group of commies, they go to this John Wayne speech and John Wayne comes up and talks to him afterwards. And Trembo says to him, Congress doesn't have the right to investigate how we think, how we speak or how we make movies. And that's I, I feel I feel like that's that's a true thing. I, 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 investigating art is i mean art's a powerful social mover is a, is a powerful thing depending on how much people pay attention to it i suppose or what the message is but it's a very also a very can be a very personal thing and for for some authoritarian busybodies to come in and threaten you over how you're making your art or how you're thinking or how you're speaking i i would absolutely have a very much fuck you mentality about that all right, so I see your pinko sympathies here, Robert. And yeah, I, these I, are my pinko. I share, you share them, them actually. You share in watching them? this movie, yeah, I I totally agree that that the government has no place in in uh, policing thought crime, you know. And but mm -hmm. at the same time, I also agree with Hoppe in the Covenant Community uh, segment where he's talking about where if you're going to have people who in an agreement with the proprietor and community, the tenants for the purpose of protecting the private property. No, this is a quote, no such thing as a right to free or unlimited speech exists, not even the unlimited speech on one's own tenant property. One may say innumerable things and promote almost any idea under the sun, but naturally no one is permitted to advocate ideas contrary to the very covenant of preserving and protecting the private property, such as democracy or communism. There can be no tolerance toward Democrats and communists in the libertarian social order. They will have to be physically separated and removed from society. So basically, if there's something that is going contrary to the very agreement, then they would not be permitted to do that. However, as I was trying to articulate before, I don't think that a state or a nation necessarily has an agreed upon covenant. And so it becomes right. a very murky situation. And there's been you can see the progression over time where we've gone from the 1940s and 50s where there's this like high uh, anti-communist rhetoric due to the Cold War and the propaganda from the government at the time to the counterculture revolution of the 60s and anti-war and through the 70s and 80s with the, um, you know, the, the me culture and the, the Wall Street go-go-goism and the 1990s me cult or I culture. And, and so on, and, and we keep moving on and on into um, basically per permutations of almost the same thing, the same phenomenon, just sort of revolving through time and across generations. 
And in a way, I sort of feel like that we're at a point where we're even under more thought crime like persecution than ever before with social media and almost a social credit system, a la the Sesame credit system in China, though it's not like formally instituted here. It's more like socially accepted or socially pressured, or there's a, a certain um, amount of democratic ostracism occurring and democratic, not in the Democrat equals or democratic equals good sense, but more in the democratic equals mob sense, where there's been a propagandized mass of people who have a thought that's been implanted or an, an NPC style like executable program to where they are going to persecute anyone who doesn't conform into this pre uh, pre populated like ideal or this, this narrative structure that basically any free thinking person would reject. And so I, I'm just like trying to um, make sense in my own head, how I feel about this movie, because I can see both sides of this, but I can also see across generations, how it's sort of uh, transformed and how it's affecting us even to this day. So you were hoping that McCarthy really had just rooted out all these guys and just taken them out <laughs> to the woodshed and thrown them in a ditch somewhere and taking care of the business, huh? Well, I mean, I even, I, I think McCarthy was probably right in knowing that there were certain people who were trying to do subver subversive things, but I don't know if he had the right to do much about it. Indeed, indeed. Maybe if he had just, I don't know, been more of an orator and talking about how communism is bad. I, he didn't have the skills to do that. I mean, these people are just authoritarian thugs. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, we've been voicing our concerns about communism for a long time now, and it's still as popular as ever. So uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Oh, there's one what? more quote. One. Wait, wait, wait. Before <laughs> Keith jumps in. Okay, go ahead, Keith. Go, go ahead. No, I'm, I. The quote's totally different. So go ahead, Keith. That's okay. I was just going to say, you know, at some point, if someone's advocating something so immoral, as I was saying earlier, at some point, you have the right to cage them for just what they're advocating. If they're outright, look, if someone's reading, you know, Das Capital and is, you know, really questioning, you know, the labor theory of value and, you know, uh, the, the more I work, the more I should get paid, regardless of the amount of subjective value I create for voluntarily, uh, uh, you know, customer. Uh, people voluntarily purchasing my product or service, that's just not enough. But people advocating the abolition of private property and the belief that I'm going to enslave you the second I get the chance to, well, then you would have the right to do it. And if you have the right to do it, then you have the right to delegate to a group of people called Congress or government or what you would have in a uh, anarcho-capitalist society, some sort of governance system that would just be for the means of efficiency. You would delegate to them um, the right to cage aggressors. I think that that would be totally just. And that's how we can actually have a principle differentiation between you know someone engaging in thought crime versus someone almost being a co-conspirator. In the same way, uh, very often uh, politicians are not aggressors. They're just people who say words and they tell other people to do things. Well, 
it's okay to hold them accountable. They are the head of a conspiracy, usually to initiate violence against peaceful people. Um, as far so wait, as so, Keith, are you are you saying that there would be an objective standard that people could agree upon on which there would be a point where intervention would be justified? No, there would not be an objective point, but. That doesn't mean the point doesn't exist. At some point, you are a threat to someone else. And <laughs> at other times, you're not. It's, al it's almost impossible to explain exactly at what moment. It, me having a gun in my holster? No. Well, what if I put my hand on it? What if it's loaded? What if I take it out of the holster? What if I point it in your direction? What if I point it at your head and pull the trigger? Well, do you have to wait until the bullet hits you in the skull until it's aggression? Well, no. At what exact point am I, you know, a direct threat to your uh, safety and violating your property rights. The, it, it's it's such a gray area, but the very fact that it's a gray area is the reason we don't want a monopoly court system. But you want competing voluntarily funded groups you can disassociate with at any time if they're not you know meeting uh, consumer demand as far as respecting the uh, private property ethic goes. But um, uh, and then just one final thing on Hoppe before uh, Robert gets to his uh, his final quote. He clarified this position. That, that many people think this means putting all leftists in concentration camps, and that's not even close to what it means. He clarified it uh, in a discussion with Jeff Dice where he says, just as on a clothed beach, you would physically remove people engaging in nudism, and on a nudist beach, you would physically remove people engaged in clothism, you would have the right to disassociate with anyone advocating democracy, mob rule, or communism, the abolition of your right to own property and live as you wished, um, so long as you're doing so peacefully. So for the same reason, if I walk into a restaurant and say, um, this guy is in a suit, therefore he should have to pay for everyone else's meal. And I think we should pretty much kill this guy if, if he doesn't give us his credit card to pay for everyone else's, the restaurant would have the right to remove me. Well, what if that restaurant was used to house people? Well, then it's just a covenant community. There's no difference uh, in principle between a restaurant and a house and a business and a covenant community, even if they're very different in size. They're both respecting the private property ethic. So um, Hoppe gets totally slandered. People just think it means, you know, uh, leftist genocide when he says something like that, which is not even close. He's not even dog whistling that um, at all. So, yeah, yeah, those are just my brief comments on that. Right. And, and Hoppe, of course, what he's talking about, is it would be geographically geographically constrained about what was privately owned by the organization or group of people or person who owned that particular unit of property. Well, and, and he's not necessarily saying that this is a, this isn't a prescription, right? He's not saying that if someone comes along and says, you know, I think communism is a good idea that everybody must go and like throw this guy out. They're just saying that you would be morally justified in doing so. Correct. No, mm. You know, uh, give me that. Uh, give me that one more time. I, I'm, I'm sorry. So I'm he's sorry. not saying he's not making a prescription that anybody advocating for communism in a covenant community must be ejected. He's saying that they would be morally justified in doing so. Yes, it, in the same way, if you wanted to let someone in your house who was constantly talking about, all right, how how am I going to kill Robert? Um, I could use a knife or a gun. Oh, take care, Robert. Good, good seeing you. Um, th thanks for letting me stay here. Uh, I could I I could bury him in the backyard and no one would find him. Yes, I guess you would have the right to do it. He, but he's saying, by the way, it's in your self-interest to not allow this parasite to grow to the point where you can no longer fight it. When it's one person out of 100,000, uh, ignore him. 
when it's half of the covenant community, well, then you have a uh, a reality problem. So in principle, you'd have the right to go after the one out of a thousand, but you might want to do it in your strategic interest as well, because this is a terrible, envious, childlike virus that spreads to a, a large number of people. But yes, he's using it uh, as a prescriptive, not uh, something you would have to do. Um, in principle, you then have a positive obligation to exclude anyone curious about the labor theory of value. Correct. Right. I, I could just be like, well, no, Keith is just the 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 covenant idiot and uh we don't really take him seriously when he's constantly talking about communism but when that idea spreads and now it's half the community yeah i can see that yeah like if Uh, he's agitating for it and and getting converts or whatever even though he's wrong right (laughs) because that that's the thing with with democracy or mob rule it doesn't matter if they're right it just matters that there's more or, or, or they just have the power. There's not more congressmen than there are people. There's not more policemen than there are people, but they have the institutionalized recognition of power. So it's not even necessarily a numbers game. It's always a mind control game and a war on consciousness. If I, I don't think we're going to get back to Hoppe, so I just want to finish one final thing on this. He actually says why many people on the left, such as Jimmy Dore, would align with people on our ideological side of... Um, of, uh, of economics. He uh, sort of tries to summarize the Marxist exploitation theory in such a way that it actually perfectly lines up with the libertarian theory. I've tried to summarize it, and here's how I did so in a paper some time ago. I promise it's quick. He goes, one, there is a small parasitic, unjust ruling class ruling over the masses. Two, the ruling class is ideologically held together by its interest in keeping the system of exploitation ongoing. Only an increase in class consciousness by the exploited can remedy this. Rulers never willingly retreat. Three, an ideological structure, media, education, advertising, courts, property rights system, and police exist to keep the ruling class in power. Four, the ruling class has an inherent tendency to be corrupted, concentrated, and centralized. Finally, number five, inherent corruption plus more centralization equals more instability equals crumbling of the system, which gives rise to a mass realization by the exploited that an unjust system of exploitation should be replaced by a system of cooperation and mutual benefit. The interesting thing about that, it's uh, he wrote it in 1990 in a paper titled Austrian Marxist Class Analysis. The reason that that's so vitally important is because he's saying, here are the top five claims of Marxism, they're all correct. The problem is they see the exploiter as the entrepreneur, when that's not it. The exploiter is not even government. The exploiter is someone who does not engage in original appropriation, homesteading virgin land, voluntary exchange, or voluntary contracts. So whether it's government, or their cronies, or you're a private criminal, all of these advocate institutionalized or individual aggression against private property and self-ownership. There is the foundational difference between morality and immorality, natural law and enslavement, and uh, civilization and barbarism. So that is one way that we can actually get to people who are more leftist-minded. That's how someone like Thomas Sowell can literally go from Marxism to free market uh, advocacy because there is actually a uh, a uh, line that uh, th- that we actually overlap in, and that is the theory of exploitation. We see it as people engaging in uh, involuntarism. They see it as anyone engaging in profit. The reason that that's obviously wrong is if I am an employee, two, two main reasons. If I'm an employee and it costs me 50 cents in gas to get to work and I make $100 a day, I have profited and I have exploited my employer and the customers. I don't care about them. 
I just use it for money. And as a customer, I just go to the store and I get this phone. I don't care about the employees. I just go there to get stuff for myself and I'm greedy. So what? There's nothing wrong with that. The second reason it's wrong is if it's okay to just be lazy and do nothing, if you have the right to do nothing, well, then you have the right to give someone an opportunity. So in other words, if it's wrong to have Amazon and give people the opportunity to get a job, even if it's for a low wage or no wage to give them experience, and you're offering them voluntarily products, you're voluntarily offering them services and employment, well, that's justified because doing none of that and giving them no option puts them at an even worse position than they otherwise would be in if you voluntarily offered it to them. So, of course, labor theory of value and their exploitation theory is completely ridiculous as HOP approved in 1990, but it also gives a spot for us to legitimately communicate with the well-meaning people who are there, as Larkin Rose said in the Candles in the Dark thing that we all attended. Um, it's not that well, we are up against evil people, but they're a very small minority. The average person is not evil, but tricked. And that's how we can communicate to uh, the trumbos of the world, assuming they really are well-intentioned. Right. And I think one of the one of the main points of what you're talking about is that, um, of course, I just, I just forgot it, which is great content for the show here. But um, Robert, you want, you want to pick up for me just for a moment? I, I don't know what you're talking about, so I'll just... Uh... I'll just go back to what I was going to say originally. Well, I know you I know you also have a parenting question in there somewhere before we end up yes. uh, finishing yes, the I... show, which we need to do pretty soon. Yes, I know. Oh, We've oh, got two... oh, my, my point was, my point was, my point was, and I can cut this out or not. We'll just leave it in. It's like real life. <laughs> Often, uh, folks who agree with this exploitation narrative, like Keith was saying, and then Hoppe's point was that he agrees with the five points that Keith said, in that they're right in that there is a problem. It's that the prescription is wrong. The diagnosis is wrong. Yes, there is a problem. They're identifying the symptoms. Like we've talked about in the past, Bernie Sanders will point out some injustice or AOC will point out some injustice, but they'll always point out the wrong solution for it because it's more of the same thing that caused the problem to begin with. So that's the point I was trying to remember. So it took me about two minutes to say something that should have been 15 seconds, and now we'll go to Robert. Well, and since they're not grounded in what Keith was talking about earlier in their proper definitions, they 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 identify just some rich guy as an evil exploiter just because he happens to be rich. It's They make all kinds of mistakes and errors in that sense. Anyway, so the movie has the, the very... The line that made me laugh out loud, I, probably the funniest line in the movie for me, is a scene where John Goodman is talking to his partner. They're making movies and they're sitting at a table in a restaurant with Trumbo and Trumbo's trying to get these guys to hire on these other blacklisted writers. And Goodman is like all for it, but his partner is like, you know, these people are communists and you know, we're at war with the communists and Goodman's like, no, we're not. And the guy's like, it's a new kind of war. And he's like, yeah, it doesn't exist. Very new. <laughs> so, so good. So good. Because it really was just a propaganda war. You know, pushed by the military industrial complex to create this, this demand for all their goods and services of weapons and that kind of thing. I mean, I, a lot is done about. There's a lot of information out there about um, the neocons back in like the 70s and the 80s. Rumsfeld, like inventing, you know, all this uh, 
these these weapons that the Soviets supposedly had, and then we need to we need to have more weapons than they do. So we need to up our orders to all these defense contractors. Uh, just massive, massive lies that basically propagandize the people into believing that there was this great enemy over there that we need to prepare for and defend against. And we have to be prepared to fight a, a an actual hot war with. And that's why we need all these nuclear weapons build up stockpiled. Uh, it, it was a real big bilking of the, of the American people as you know, usually is. So um, that I thought was just the funniest line. And then if you guys have any comments on that, and then I'll get into my, my, my dad question after that. Yeah. So uh, they're uh, m- much like the uh, war on terror today uh, and almost everything else that uh, the, the state uh, tries to um, justify as an increase in their, uh, the, their power over the uh, voluntary sector. Um, what they essentially do is they will either fabricate an issue or drastically exaggerate it or create the issue in the first place. So there are literal uh, terrorists who want to kill American civilians. What they don't get into is that the explicit reason for this is because it is a uh, result of the U.S. occupying the land of the two sacred mosques in uh, Mecca and Medina. This is proven in a book uh, called Cutting the Fuse by James Feldman and Robert Pape, along with Robert Pape's book, Dying to Win, published by Chicago University Press. So while it is true, there are people who want to kill Americans, what they don't tell you is it's as a causal result of state intervention. Just as they mentioned that there was a Great Depression, which made people want communism. They don't mention that the Federal Reserve was created, um, what, uh, 16 uh, years previously, and it's what actually inflated the money supply to... Uh, overvalue stocks more so than they otherwise would be, just like they over and uh, they inflate the price of housing before the housing bubble, just like they inflate the price of college for this college loan bubble. They don't actually get to the heart of the issue. Now, people don't appreciate that this also applies to the Cold War. Big example is the OSS, what we now call the CIA. The Office of Strategic Service actually um, was uh, using Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam as an asset. There is a picture of him uh, with OSS agents actually engaging in what is generally understood as a way to uh, put in our guy in order to have sort of favorable relations in the future. Well, so what? The U.S. installed Karzai in Afghanistan. Did that end the Afghan war? They were friends with Saddam when Rumsfeld was selling them weapons uh, during the Iraq-Iran war. Are they friends with Rumsfeld? They were friends with bin Laden and the Mujahideen fighters in Bosnia, Kosovo, Chechnya, and in Afghanistan against the Soviets. And now they're friends with them in Syria, Yemen, until two weeks ago, and Libya under the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group fighting against Gaddafi when Gaddafi tried arresting bin Laden in 1996 before even America put a hit out on him. The point is, this also applies to the Soviets. This is, it's it's a long read, but it's in a book by Anthony Sutton called Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development, 1917 to 1930, is the first edition. He has evidence going up all the way until the 80s. Communism is a plot by the wealthiest people on the planet. Jacob Schiff funding the Russian Revolution. Frederick Engels, the capitalist at the time, socialist who was rich. Uh, funding Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, George Soros today, Google, Apple, all of these people are advocating the institutionalized aggression against private property to socialize property under the guise of the state. And guess who controls the state? 
and their cronies. So that is my source that uh, so much of economic development was actually done uh, by Americans because the American government was conspiring with the Soviet government. This, by the way, is not, it's not only, you know, something I recognize as legitimate because it, it, it's immensely um, studied. Uh, he also wrote a summary of it in a book titled, I think it's titled National Suicide. And then there's another book called East Minus West Equals Zero that, uh, that that proves this. But National Security Advisors, the big new Brzezinski mentions it in a book, I think between two ages, where he says, you know, it's amazing. The work of Antony Sutton really showed that the only reason the Soviets were able to have so much uh, power and influence was because they were actually conspiring with Western governments to increase the amount of GDP they otherwise wouldn't have. This is not to bash free trade. Free trade is good. Conspiring with other governments to uh, have a fake Cold War is bad. Yeah, if I'm going to be real fuzzy on this because it's been a long time since I've looked at it. But my understanding is that there was a fair amount of subsidization of communist governments over the course of decades that would sort of prop them up to make it less uh, disastrous than it otherwise would have been due to the inherent nature of uh, the economic calculation problem causing the inability to allocate resources properly. So in a sense, foreign aid and, and subsidies that were provided to communist governments back uh, over the decades past uh, essentially propped them up to the point where they could continue to cause harm uh, over the long term by getting these short-term fixes to allow them to continue to basically be zombie walking dead. Yeah, just like bailouts today of uh, of private corporations. I, I I don't know the specifics on all of that, um, but uh, but but I will say uh, the Soviet uh, economic development and Western technology. By uh, the, he was a member of uh, he was a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. He wrote a book uh, exposing the Federal Reserve. Anthony Sutton was the guy who wrote about Skull and Bones in a book called America's Secret Establishment, where he warned us about you know. Uh, people getting in power and then fabricating events in such a way that they will create a problem and then usher in a solution that they otherwise couldn't have uh, gotten the populace to accept had it not been for the very problem they created. He wrote about this using primary sources in that book that were given to him by Charlotte Thompson Isabit, who wrote a book, Deliberate Dumbing Down of America, exposing the state education system as mind control in communism. She stole the documents from, I think, her dad or her grandfather, and so th this guy is one of the unsung heroes of freedom and is uh, so, so seldom appreciated. Don't tase me, bro. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> All right. All right well, I know, I, my, no, I know we're getting along. I know we, we are. We're super I've got, long. I've got two more things I want to address, and they're okay. related to if the movies that so you yet, can't complain. Keith, Keith, I got to I got to slow you down. We're not on Library or Odyssey yet. I can't get canceled just yet. We could do it. We can make the move. Anyway, okay, so I want to talk about the – this is a fairly obvious point for our listeners, but I don't care. Like you said, we just make the same points over and over again every episode. So the main reason why the HUAC committee failed is the main reason why there are black markets for anything, like anything that's made illegal – you can't even, you could get heroin in prison. It's the most secure places and they still, you can get all the drugs you want. So Trump, Dalton Trumbo's product was his ability to write these scripts. And there was still a huge demand in Hollywood for these scripts. And just because you have 
a bunch of people saying, no, 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 those are bad. There are still a whole bunch of people that want that product. And he found a way through his like little family business with his a little operation where he had all these different telephones and all these different names. And he found a way along with his other blacklisted writers to get those products to the buyers, even though much like a drug dealer, even though it was frowned on by any number of, you know, prying eyeballs, even though it was frowned upon by his neighbors, he was still found a way to get those products to the people that wanted to buy them. So, that just the harder you squeeze people are ingenious they will find ways to sell the products and buy the products uh, outside of like you know whacking the guy you're not going to get him to stop doing the one thing that he's good at so just a way to talk about black markets and that they're always going to be there for anything that human beings actually desire it's just it's a kind of fruitless so anyway the the last thing i wanted to say and you know it's coming daniel so Dalton Trumbo, he's this kind of eccentric weirdo guy. He's working his fingers to the bone, though. I, in, a, in one sense, he's doing it to further his career and also just kind of stick it to the man and show him, hey, look at this. You've been your, your blacklist was a pointless thing. And look at this. I beat you. I beat you. Me, Dalton Trumbo and all these my communist friends. We we created all these. We wrote all these scripts and all these movies that you like and are celebrated were written by us, the people that you said sh weren't allowed to work anymore. Now, he does this at the expense of, to, for the benefit of his family. He, he moves into a nice new house in a nice new neighborhood, and he provides all the things they need, food, clothing, shelter. But he kind of removes himself, in order to do this, he removes himself to being this kind of typing lech in this upstairs bathtub and he doesn't even come down for his daughter's birthday party. So on the one hand, yes, he's a good dad. But did you think he took it too far and removed you know, himself where he didn't necessarily need to be? Like He probably didn't need to write all those scripts in order to keep clothes on their backs and food in their bellies. He could also kind of, you know, spent some love around to his family and that kind of thing. So... Good dad, bad dad, Dan, you tell me. Well, it's uh, I knew this question was coming, and it's it's very tough. Now, if you've seen the documentary, which I know you have not, but it, I, I suggest that you do, because there are different pressures that are revealed in the documentary. He didn't move into some suburban Los Angeles neighborhood in reality. He moved to Mexico, destitute, and over the course of living in Mexico, his savings dwindled and dwindled and dwindled while he was doing this um, attempt to create additional scripts under uh, alternative names and things like that to make pennies on the dollars for the work that he was doing. Now, in the movie, the Trumbo movie with Brian Cranston that we watched, we just see him working his fingers to the bone, being stressed, working 18 hours a day, seven days a week, nonstop, turning scripts around in like a week or two. And so we're we're we're, we're given that he's under an immense amount of pressure, monetary pressure, economic pressure, because he's not being permitted to earn the amount that he would normally have been able to, to uh, garner from his efforts. Um, so I can totally understand that the amount of pressure he was under would create stress and, a lot, and, and cause somebody to lash out. Plus, he was drinking heavily and taking a bunch of uh, amphetamines and things like that. So when I saw him snap at his 
daughter coming up to say, hey, can you just spend a few minutes with me for my birthday? Yes, that is emotionally jarring in the movie, but I can see where he was coming from. Like I've snapped at my kids and they're great. You know, I've talked about this in the pre-show. We've tried to promote like the ideas of freedom and, and autonomy and private property and all of those things, but they still kind of act like grubby little communists from time to time. And it's like kind of infuriating. Plus, uh, my wife and I, you know, we have like adult lives we're trying to live. And uh, I have a job that I don't particularly like that I'm trying to do on top of like 15 other things. And so, yes, tempers get short. So I can totally identify with Trumbo, who's going through immense more pressure than I ever did. He this this scene in the movie that you're talking about happened after he spent a year in prison. For his thoughts. So I can totally understand why he would snap at somebody. Now, that doesn't excuse that he should have snapped at his daughter on his, on her 16th birthday and that he should have, you know, like understood that this is a very momentous like occasion and he should have spent some time with her. But I can also understand where he was coming from, especially with the situation that he had dealt with prior to that. So good dad, bad dad. I think he's a dad under an immense amount of pressure and stress dealing with an unjust situation uh, that, you know, resulted in some bad outcomes. And, and as he says in the, uh, final speech, you know, no one came out of this without scars. Fair enough. Okay. So you are, uh, that's a long, long dodge of the question. I appreciate that, Daniel. <laughs> that's what I got. Really, that's, that's the politician's answer. Uh, although you actually talked about what I asked you. So it's not really a politician answer. You just, it was just a real, real long dodge. So I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Basically, I'm saying I can see where he's coming from, but I don't like think he. You're not going to judge him. All of his faculties, he should not have done that. But under the immense amount of pressure, it's kind of understandable. It, yeah, it. I tended to give him a bit of a pass. Although, what did you think of his wife's criticisms that came back from prison? He had just been barking orders and that kind of thing. I mean, well, still I, just the pressure, right? Just the pressure. He turned, it changed him. Yeah. I, I, I felt like in the movie that was him putting this hat on of, I need to just work, 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 work to provide for my family. And that's how you, I'm showing my affection for them. Right. That's one of his love languages. Do you think that his family didn't quite understand that? Yeah. I think like that, the grubby little commies that they are. Right. Because, you know, in a family unit, yeah, communism kind of works uh, occasionally, you know, kind of well. Um, mm -hmm. Or is sort of the, the modus operandi. It's sort of like um, the kibbutz, you know, the the very small situation where people are relying on each other and there's expectations of each other because they formed into this voluntary community. So in a sense, it's not really communism. It's more like a voluntary uh, charitable exchange. So it's not it's not communism if it's voluntary. For the last time, it's also not sharing if it's coercive. So, uh, yeah, kibbutz and families, totally legitimate. But you associate with them voluntarily unless you're, I don't know, the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world. Well, then you're not engaged in voluntarism. And that is actual communism, not respecting people's self-ownership rights. I almost thought you were going to say Jeffrey Dahmer. Which uh, reminded me of it, uh, it would this, also apply there. This, this, yeah. meme, <laughs> this meme I saw, and I know it's March. But uh, around Thanksgiving, uh, due to the lockdowns and the 
you're not supposed to have people over for Thanksgiving. There was a meme going around that said, Jeffrey Dahmer's face said, nobody tells me how many people I can have for Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. And then again, I guess the communists would uh, justify him because he engaged in uh, hard labor to uh, find the guys to kidnap and murder and cook them and eat them. It's a lot of work. And he was just engaging in his positive right to food. So even though it involved initiating violence against peaceful people, he has a right to eat. Therefore, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and AOC are on the same playing field as far as I'm concerned. All right. So if we haven't been canceled yet, uh, that, that might just be the thing to do it. So, um, Robert, I, I quick criticize Israel this way. We definitely get, get canned. <laughs> so, uh, we are super long and I know Robert, you've, you've answered your question or you've asked your question. I've evaded it. I think successfully. Um, <laughs> if we could maybe move on, uh, unless you want to press me further, uh, into final summary and review and, and let's give a, um, you know, number of, uh, it's the Hollywood 10. So how many out of the Hollywood 10 would you give this as a score, as a movie? And and let's focus on the movie itself. Let's grade the movie as a how well was it made? What do we think of it? Did we enjoy it? Would we recommend it? All right. So Trumbo, uh, yeah, I'm going to probably give it a higher score, I think, than you guys, maybe just because of the subject matter in the sense that it's about a writer. I, I appreciate any kind of time where you're talking about the, the, the craft of writing and the hero is a writer. I, 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 I just love storytelling so much that I can appreciate that even if he's a dummy about economics, which most people are. So I can't, I can fault him for his massive activism, but I can't fault him for just being stupid about that kind of thing in the most sense, even though he is an adult and he should have known better. But anyway, the movie itself, I, I I tend to think that it starts off pretty strong in the sense that it's as a hook, right? It's got uh, what generally people think of as an injustice, right? That that this this government is persecuting these people for their ideas. And then uh, Trumbo is a fairly sympathetic character. Um, he's a family man that is an artist, artistic type, storyteller kind of guy. So I identify him for the most part. Um, and then the movie kind of just happens. I mean, the main protagonist, the main antagonist is the government and they are kind of relegated to like this random shadowy motion picture guy or government dude um, that kind of appears and talks to Kirk Douglas or talks to some random guy here and there. Uh, after the hearings, the main villain of the movie is just kind of relegated to the background. And it's more about how Trumbo is going to figure out a way around the blacklisting. So then the villain is kind of the blacklisting, which is like eh, kind of an idea kind of there's like the main, the main people, the, the studio heads just won't hire him, but they're just hiring. They're just not hiring him because it's not like politically expedient, not because they give a shit about you know, his communistic ideas, they probably are mostly sympathetic or just care about the business. And they think he writes good movies. So they would actually prefer to hire him, which they obviously did before this. So they're not really the villains either. It it just kind of loses its narrative weight for me towards the end. And it probably goes on a little bit longer than it should and introduces some new characters like Kirk Douglas comes into it when he's doing Spartacus and he kind of becomes a character. And it just kind of meanders towards the end. So it's not the most perfect wrapped up tight 
movie that you come to expect from like an actual three act story. But as a biopic, it's pretty strong. Um, it's probably better than like, I don't know, people really like Creed or, you know, some sports movies where it's about a guy doing a thing. Those are usually not great. I, I, I think I liked this better um than like ray or creed or any of these kind of movies so i'm gonna give this probably seven blacklisted hollywood writers out of ten um it's not a perfect movie it, but it's 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 a pretty decent movie for me i can see that i probably liked it more than other people did uh to key's point it's probably evil in the sense that it's basically equating communism with the good guys versus the evil fascism which is a ridiculous distinction, but you know, it's, it's, it's okay. I enjoyed it. All right. Very good, Robert. I appreciate your take. And, uh, would you give it seven blacklisted writers? Is that right? I did. All right. So Keith, what's your take? Uh, and how many blacklisted writers do you give this Trumbo? I, I would, g- Brian Cranston's such a great actor. I would probably give it a seven out of 10, that seems ridiculous because maybe I'm just copying exactly what I heard, but I feel like seven out of 10 is reasonable as far as, you know, um, I, I think the movie's totally evil in the same way. Uh, you know, it, it would be the equivalent of saying that uh, enslaving someone is just helping someone get a job and just giving them experience, giving them a place to live, giving them water, giving them shelter. That's all slavery was about along with singing songs it's so evil to portray communism as sharing that it's as bad as saying slavery was about giving people a place to live. That's why I think it's it's so evil and uh, and terrible. The main takeaway that uh, I, I think is important for people to get that a genuine person who is attracted to the ideas of Karl Marx, feeling that the worker is exploited, needs to understand the worker and the entrepreneur as if the entrepreneur isn't a worker. What a ridiculous ground to even concede. The reason that um, people who operate on the business end and the manager side are actually harmonious with the employees of a factory or farm or anything else is because the division of labor. Some people are really good at things. Others are really bad. Some people are great managers. Some people are great singers. Some people are not great singers, and it's okay. Some people are not great engineers. Some people are not great pilots. You want to specialize in what you're good in and trade for the rest. It's how people are able to become more wealthy than they otherwise would be. It also increases productivity, which is the reason wages increase over time, assuming competition also exists and you have alternatives to where you can employ your productive capacities. So productivity and competition, both uh, big aspects of the free market is how uh, impoverished people can become wealthy, whether it's in America or in Africa, Botswana versus Zimbabwe, you could look at more free market places have wealthier poor people, North Korea versus South Korea, uh, West Germany versus East Germany, you can see everywhere across the planet that free markets are embraced. The poorest people among us are uh, much wealthier than they would otherwise be. Um, It's not like in the year 1700, there just wasn't enough people unionizing and voting. Unionizing and voting would have done nothing in 1700 or 1600 or 1500 or 1400. And the same reason it's not the solution to the problem today. The problem in the year 1200 was human beings did not have the productive capacity and the technological advances in order to engage in the uh, division of labor activities that would have increased people's uh, access to goods and services that improve their life. And it would not have improved the quality. 
which things like competition and free market innovations do. Um, yeah, so the, the movie was evil, but it was also good. Um, seven out of ten, reluctantly. All right. I, like I, I appreciate that, Keith. And, and I would also argue to extend on your point about the division of labor allowing additional uh, increases in standard of living and therefore free time to thus whine about things. It also increased the division of whining. Uh, as we've basically subsidized the ability to complain about things. Um, now, this particular movie, uh, I know that perhaps I've been wishy-washy on this entire episode, and I, I think that I still am. However, I think the movie is actually pretty good. Uh, I'm going to give it eight blacklisted writers out of ten. Um, and I think that they should not have been imprisoned for a thought crime or contempt of Congress. I think that they were very much uh, uh, in contempt, but they should have been. They justifiably were in contempt of Congress, as uh, all people really should be. And if you look at polls of the um, approval rating of Congress, you'll see that most of the time they're below 10 percent. So um, I don't think that this would be um, necessarily a standard by which you could jail people. Uh, I did find that this movie was actually pretty well crafted, and I know that it did seem very long, as I mentioned in the open. Um, I don't know if that just had more to do with personal reasons uh, in that I was very tired, and we watched the first half an hour, and we're like, holy crap, I'm really tired. I got to go to sleep. How far into this are we? Only half an hour? Shit. We have to watch the rest of this tomorrow night. But I will say that I felt as if the length was necessary, and it is only two hours, but I think that you needed to have that whole narrative to establish that Trumbo was actually working for something greater than just the perceived injustice uh, injustice against him personally. And we see this with the Louis C.K. Um, conversations where he says, check back with me in a year. And then there was the later scene where he's talking about whether he's fighting for the, uh, uh, for the proletariat or uh, for his own career. And I think that Trumbo in the movie was really pushing for fighting against the blacklist by proving that the blacklist was ineffective because they could use the black market and that the quality of the product would, the quality of their writing, the quality of what they were producing would win out and, and thus make the blacklist um, ridiculous. And, and how it's presented, I think that that is made the case in that you know, for Spartacus and for Exodus, which is the name of the other movie, that uh, Trumbo was given screenwriting credit for after the blacklist. Those are the two things that helped break the blacklist. And uh, people did commit suicides as a result of being put on this blacklist. People were economically disadvantaged. Uh, Trumbo lost uh, most of his uh, wealth, his income. He moved to another country and was destitute while writing these things. So it did have an impact on him and his family. And I think it was unjust. However, I also think that he was naive in his advocation for communism, though I don't think that that was necessarily a reason to uh, socially ostracize somebody uh, and economically uh, destroy them or put them in prison for a year. So I, I'm still conflicted on this movie, though I still uh, will give it a rating of eight. So you guys can hate me in the uh, post-show comments uh, in the Kathleen Turner yes. Overdrive on this one, because I think, I think this is one that just is we've talked for an hour and a half and, and I'm still like, we could talk for hours and hours and I'm still not going to make up my mind on this thing. Uh, there's legitimate beefs on both sides. I mean, I, the movie does a good job of showing how he was just a guy with some kooky ideas, even though they're horribly evil, if actually implemented. But I mean, he actually didn't have the power to implement them. Right. I mean, you could, 
you could have all the worst ideas in the world, but if you're an ant yelling at an elephant, you're, you're no, you're no threat. But right, and what's the other side? They're, they're, the government actually has an arm that approves Hollywood scripts for military movies. Yeah. You know, isn't that like 10 times worse? You know, just throwing an arbitrary, like, exponential factor out there? Indeed, sir. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good movie, a complex movie. Uh, leads to a good discussion. Thanks, Keith, for coming on and talking about it. Anytime, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. All right, so I guess that's going to wrap up uh, this episode of The Last Nighters. Now, uh, Keith, you are, of course, always welcome to come back, and I think we've talked about some potential uh, future episodes on gangster movies, so I, I hope that we can have you back. We're probably booked up through about June, so maybe in July, something like that. Uh, but you can, uh, everyone can find the episode notes at lastnighters.com slash, what is this, 166. My eyes are getting old, unfortunately, so I can't see uh, all that well. But... Uh, we're going to be back next week with another movie that I think will jar a bunch of good conversation. And that is the professor and the madman. Uh, Robert, I don't know if you've uh, heard of this movie, but nope. it's Mel Gibson and Sean Penn. And it's about the first effort to create a dictionary of the English language. And uh, oh. I think that this will be an interesting discussion as language has been perverted profusely since uh, as, of course, foretold by one George Orwell. And it's one of the ways of destroying the ability to do critical thinking. Uh, so I think that'll be a great point of discussion for next week. And, of course, uh, the guest will be the professional asshole, who, of course, is always opinionated and uh, will be a fun guest to have on. All right, cool. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, well, very good. Very good. And uh, Keith, again, thank you very much. We'll, of course, have links to all of your work over on the show notes page. And I hope you can stick around for a little bit of the Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Maybe berate me a little bit for being wishy-washy on this one. And uh, we'll be back next week with The Professor and the Madman. And uh, thank you guys for being our guest. We are uh, being our audience. I've already thanked the guests. So I got to thank the audience now. And I got to thank Robert for being the co-host and all that stuff. And uh Oh, you know, you want to do a final rant, Robert, for like how people can support the show and, and, and promote liberty in their own lives and, and things like that. You know, you know we, we're already super long. Why not go a little longer? Why not? I mean, we're already super, super long. Let's keep it going. Just just, just light this candle. Uh, yeah, you can support us any number of ways. Uh, my favorite way, of course, is just living your damn life as you see fit without living in fear. That's that's my big one. And living in uh, opposition to tyrants. That's also my big, my big, my big happy. That gets me so happy when I see a news article or something. Somebody standing up against the man. There's that, there was that, uh, they don't even know we exist, of course. But there was that uh, New Jersey gym that uh, was operating outside of the governor's shutdown, lockdown order crap. They were just they tore up all the fines and fees and whatnots. And they just were said, you know, free men don't ask permission. And I just love that line. And uh, to hear it said by some gym guys in New Jersey, just made me super happy. They've never heard of actual anarchy. Probably they've never heard of me or Daniel, maybe not even of Keith, but they are living and supporting us by doing as they see fit, living their own lives. And so uh, that's how you can support us. You could also do some likes and some shares and some subscribing and whatnots. But uh, 
I mean, every every time I see a, a news story like that, it makes me happy. Right, and and I agree. I think that that is supporting the ideas that we espouse, and that's enough for us, even if they've never heard of us. As long as you're advocating for volunteerism, consensual relationships, and and choices being made, and opportunities uh, being allowed, uh, then you're advocating for us. And so, uh, you know, that's what we do here, and that's what you guys do. And we should uh, we should end this now because it's super long, and I'm fucking tired. <laughs> And now I can put an explicit warning on this episode because I've sworn. Is that is that what we do? We put warnings on these things now? What? Yeah, trigger warnings. Oh, I've been swearing this whole time. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's right. And we had the great fucking great Keith Knight on tonight. This isn't so. going to be sold at Walmart. All right. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> we won't be on the Disney Channel. Dang it. All this work for nothing. <clears throat> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just like uh, Dumbo and and Dr. Seuss and, uh, and the Muppets and shit. The Muppets, yeah. Trigger warnings all around for everyone. So, yeah. anyway, uh, this has been our episode on uh, Trumbo. Um, I know we didn't talk about the movie as much as we probably should have, but we definitely <laughs> talked about a bunch of related things. And I hope you guys enjoyed it on this super extra long is a hot dog a sandwich episode. Uh, <laughs> Lastnighters.com slash one sixty six. And with that, I'll say good night. From last night, everyone. Peace out.